Hello and welcome to the GMS Magazine Podcast. I am Paco Garcia, your host. And this is the Board Game Interview Room, the show in which I am lucky enough to get together with the best people in the world of board games and ask them a ton of questions about their games, their dreams and their projects and whatever it is they're doing that tends to be pretty amazing. Today, though, I don't have a board game maker. I have a fellow podcaster, YouTuber, broadcaster, and passionate about games from the East. I'm talking about Jay. Jay, Jay has a um, absolutely brilliant blog called Cardboard East, where he makes all sorts of articles about games from, well, from the East, games from countries that normally we wouldn't think about as uh, countries that produce great board games like Vietnam, Taiwan, um, China, Thailand, all sorts of places that we just don't think about. And we should, because every time I've gone to Essen, I've seen some absolute gems coming from that part of the world. So I wanted to ask him and talk to him about what he does, why he does it, and why we should keep an eye on the sort of games coming out from the East. So without further ado, thank you very much indeed for being there. By the way, if you want to be featuring the podcast, you want to come and say hello, do get in touch. You can email me at podcast.gmsmagazine.com and also find me in Twitter where I spend a fair amount of time or in Facebook where I would be more than happy to welcome you there. But for now, here's Jay. Uh, Jay, welcome to the show. This has been months in the making and is going to be the most amazing interview ever. We're going to make up for the months of waiting. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Paco. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm glad we can finally sit down and <laughs> yes. we got time to be there. Yeah, because we, we both have um, the, the same passion, and, but we are, uh, unfortunately, a continent apart because we both love Asian board games. Um, oh, wow. Awesome. So I thought I I need to talk to this man because I love I saw you in Twitter you know I saw you in Twitter and I thought yeah this man is really passionate about Asian board games and he's in the right part of the world and I have to wait until Essen to be able to get some because otherwise I can't do it so I need to talk to this man about it so uh, and, and you're you're very busy because you run your blog you have a podcast you have your YouTube channel you have a job you you have a life. How how do you do it's not it? Not easy balancing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the answer to that is one: I don't have kids. Okay. Um, two: uh, My wife uh, and I both started the channel. So when we first started, um, I was the base of the channel, and she wanted to be on the back end, and she wanted to learn Final Cut Pro, and then I, eventually over time, I learned Final Cut Pro as well. So mm-hmm. that way, if she was busy one week. Um, working on her dissertation, I could jump in and do the editing. And I think the two of us uh, both motivate each other to get things done. So it's just a matter of making time for it and letting go of some other hobbies. Yeah, no, I, believe me, I know exactly how it feels. And it's it's interesting that you and your wife have that partnership because me and my husband are exactly the same thing. Um, even though he's not into, into board games like at all. But he loves all the video production side of things. So he does all the editing and recording and, and everything. And I just do the fun bit, which is amazing. So, um, you, <laughs> I mean, um, taking a look at your, your website, even though you're American, you've been living in Taiwan for a number of years now. Is it then? That's quite a number of years. That, that's a long, long time. <laughs> Uh, did you get into board games when you arrived in Taiwan, or were you into board games before that? How? Where do you come from, board game wise? Um, well, I'm I was a child of the '80s and '90s. Um, I, my mom had it in her heart to make sure that I learned the piano. So my uh, private lessons was in a little tiny strip mall. I don't know if there were strip malls uh, in Spain mm-hmm. <laughs> back in the 20th century. Yeah, but uh, we had some. And as it turned out, there was a comic book store next to the 
where I had my private lessons. So the unfortunately the comic books won, and then the '90s uh, Magic came, and I got hooked. And Magic the Gathering, I think, is where I finally started to get more into uh, gaming. That's where I learned. I think I learned more about modern gaming. Mm-hmm. And then from there, um, every comic book store that I would go to in the future had Magic, and so they had Catan, and so they had like uh, more and more uh, German games. So when you arrived in 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 Taiwan, did you already have an an inkling for Asian board games, or is that something that you were just uh, you know, basically what you had near you, which if it is anything like what I have near me, is definitely not full of Asian board games like at all. Well, I would say that I think that there's a big misconception at that, that uh, even though there are like a lot of old um, Asian board games like Go or Shogi or like uh, or Shang-Chi, which was a Chinese test, the, the actual like modern uh, style of uh, Asian board games is actually quite nascent. Like, it's very new. Mm-hmm. When I first came to Taiwan in 2006, uh, there were only, I think, a handful of like board game stores. Uh, there was one place, and all of them imported, you know, Carcassonne, lots of stuff from Germany and Europe. In fact, uh, one of my earlier board game groups was one at a university where I played with a lot of uh, local Taiwanese uh, university students. And in that room, um, I would say a lot of them grew up to be the publishers today in Taiwan. That's so um, amazing. <laughs> so I've actually known like some of the publishers for like, well over a decade um, because we we used to back in the day all play uh, games together, and they they are a fun fun bunch. They like they play Agricola like really really mean, which is very. <laughs> I mean, like, they would purposely get in each other's way to where, like, maybe the high score would be 12. I, you know, uh, the thing is, that very much sounds like my kind of player, because that's that's the kind of way. I am, I am absolutely rubbish at board games, okay? I, I never, ever play to win, because I just don't do it. I play for the social interaction. I, I play because I like to figure out mm-hmm. how the games play. But I never play to win. So one of my strategies is always to get in the way of other players. You know, when we play something like Azul, for instance, I I just I just love to be able to figure out what pieces somebody else needs so I can get it before they do, even if it does me no good at all. But just to see their faces when I take them. <laughs> so I like your friends already. I think they're amazing. It's it's quite fun. I try to uh, tell myself that at the end of the day, it's just you know just cardboard or acrylic or plastic at these days, and I should let let it take it personally and take it home with me. But I love the fact that uh, me putting cardboard on a, on the table can upset two or three people at that table. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of player are you? I mean, well, firstly, what kind of games do you play and like? Um, um, I guess like, I mean, I do, I am competitive. Uh, I do, I do play to win, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm very accept- acceptable that I, I lose a lot. Uh, I used to be an English teacher and I would tell my students that, um, most games, there's going to be one winner, so most people lose a game. So most of the people that play games lose. So if you lose, it's okay. Totally normal. <laughs> Just to get them in that mindset. Um, I Actually, I like quite a bit of games. Um, if you're talking about the West, uh, I don't really talk about Western games that much on my channel. But I do, I think more than half my games are from the West. Uh, I do like war games a lot. I really love the coin series uh, okay. from GMT Games. Um, I do like 4X stuff, uh, which is like Roots, you know, Forbidden Stars, Sid Meier's Civilization from 2010. Uh, but I also like uh, economic games, such as like a Field of Arla. I love Shipyard, Underwater Cities. Uh, my wife loves uh, Castles of Burgundy and Formosa Tea. So I'm a little bit all over the place. Yes, you are. Uh, how about, well, let's, let's, let's dive in into... Um the Asian board game scene that you have seen grow because mm-hmm. it, it is pretty obvious that you've been into it for, for a while and being able to see that grow is amazing. One of the things that I have found um, that made me fall in love with Asian games is that there is a massive difference in the way that games are thought about 
uh, when when mm-hmm. they're, they're about to be designed. Uh, for instance, one of the things that I see an awful lot is a lot of games that they get their mechanics and mechanisms and then they get a theme stamped onto it without having nothing to do yeah. with it. I don't see that much when I take a look at Asian board games. I, I see a lot more thematic sense and cultural sense and cultural identity with within mm-hmm. those games. Have you also seen that, or am I just seeing things that don't exist? No, no, absolutely. Um, this last uh, spring and summer, I've been focusing a lot on Singapore games, games from Singapore. Uh, one of the publishers there is Oregon or Oregane, mm-hmm. and they're they're probably the best uh, publisher that I know of of integrating uh, local culture uh, with their gameplay mechanics. So, if you know anything about Singapore, like if you go to, they love durian there. And if you go to any of the hotels or signs, they say no durian, okay. <laughs> because it could it could be quite stinky. And they have a game uh, called Durian Dash, which is just about uh, durian. You know, there's a party game called Chop, and Chop is like a brand of like pocket tissue paper, like the tissue paper you might have in your pocket. And Chop is something that they do in Singapore. Like they have um, what they call hawker centers, which are giant food courts. And people will save their seats by taking like this tissue and put it on the table. Okay. And it's something that's very unique to Singapore, right? Because I think like, because I come from America and we see that, we're just going to slide that off the table and sit down, <laughs> unfortunately. But they're really cool about it like that in uh, Singapore. And so they designed, Origami designed a whole game about that. And I think that's really uh, interesting. Uh, one of the, if you had to name one dish that probably described all of Singapore, it would probably be, uh, uh, Hainan chicken or chicken rice is mm-hmm. what they call, and they created a a whole world of right game about about Chinese restaurants. So they're they're really good at uh, integrating the local culture with their games. Um, the reason why I think that a lot of uh, Asian publishers do that is uh, well, Asian publishers know that they have to sell the games locally, mm-hmm. and local markets are still very new to games. Now they might play like. Uh, mahjong or mahjong like uh, like all the time but they're not used to modern uh, designs of games so having something that's very approachable that might be about the local culture uh, like some Taiwanese publishers have like uh, learning Chinese games right okay that that can help market to the local market but um, like the publishers in Taiwan they know that like if they want to survive uh, they need to sell their games internationally so it needs to be a theme that's approachable to uh, like the local community who's still very nascent, very new to the hobby, and then internationally to everyone out there. Uh, and that creates all these different things that kind of focuses the design. So like a lot of time when these publishers will have small box games. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason is because they'll take their games to Germany, and if you have like big ticket to ride size boxes, uh, essentially you're just shipping air on the pallet. You know, so if you have smaller box games, you're able to ship more games on your palette. So that way you you can sell more games there at Essen. And also, like, they'll, they'll notice that, like, uh, I guess this is true with every uh, industry. Like, everyone kind of leans towards laziness. Or if it's there's less friction involved, they'll go in the way of less friction. Mm-hmm. So... Taiwanese publishers, um, even Singapore publishers as well, and, and some Japanese publishers, and especially Korean publishers, they will create a language independent games, games without much text on them. So that way, if a publisher in North America or Europe wants to uh, distribute it, then they just need to translate the rulebook. Like all the components are the same, and they just need a new rulebook. And they, oh, I just need a new rulebook? That's fine. I can print that out. That's easy. I'll, yeah, I'll pick up the game. And yet, so I think that these limitations of the industry have changed how people to design games here in Taiwan. That, yeah, and, and that's interesting because um, uh, even though the games are indeed designed to be quite um, easy to to market, in fact, um, recently I got a kindly world, and uh, today I recorded a, a video of um, Ultia. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's it's adorable. Uh, and, and both games, as you said, mega tiny. I mean, they can fit in pretty much any pocket. And both games pretty much yeah. language language dependent. Uh, Ultia is, is just absolutely adorable. And yet, 
we don't see enough companies bringing those games to North America and Europe, which are basically the, the largest markets. Why not? Why do you think that's not happening? Um, well, I think that I think with a lot of chat that I see on Twitter and uh, on BGG, I think that a lot of uh, people in the hobby uh, tend to forget that these board game companies are companies first, and they will sell what sell, and despite what people want, it may not be what they what the actual like community wants. You know, so a lot of people want smaller boxes, but a lot of European publishers have told Taiwanese publishers to their face, like, your game is too small. If it's bigger, I'll pick it up. You know, like, Oink, Oink Games from Japan had a lot of trouble uh, at first because, uh, like, a lot of French publishers wanted the box to be a little bit bigger. And Oink was very stubborn and was like, no, we'll keep it really small. But eventually, over time, Oink gave way and, like, now the box is a little bit bigger in Europe and they, they sell more. And I totally forgot your... <laughs> Original question. No, 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 the, the original question is, is is why no more companies, you know, bring it, even if they have to change yeah. the package, because I, I just don't, I just well, don't I understand that, it. I think that um, after living in Taiwan for 16 years, I can tell you that I would say the West really knows nothing of Asia. Like it's, <laughs> like, it's I, I, I can't, I just really can't stress that enough. Like, it's um, and I don't think that's that's ignorance or just like hatred. I think that you know, growing up and even in America, I was very uh, used to seeing European culture, like whether it's movies, TV, or just celebrities. You know, like oh, Jean Claude Van Damme comes from Europe. You know, so like things like this. Whereas uh, that really didn't happen out of Asia. You know, like uh, like at least not when I was growing up. Now in the last ten years, that's changed quite significantly, especially in the last uh, 20 years, this, in the 21st century. But I mean, I still remember when, when I think like one of the greatest uh, movies of all time from coming from uh, Hong Kong is Wu uh, Jiandao, which is, I think, Infernal Affairs. And that got translated to an American movie uh, by like Martin Scorsese, and I forgot the name of it, but I remember at the Oscars, they said, this is based off a Japanese movie. And I thought, oh, big face palm. We can't just don't know the difference between Hong Kong and Japan. That's Ouch. that's just terrible. And this is supposed to be, you know, people that are more woke than usual, like like uh, like Hollywood, right? And so <laughs> the I think it's the thing is that just the world, at least the Western uh, Western markets, just don't really know anything about Asia. So Western publishers, I think, are a little bit more hesitant to sell a game that is a little bit uh, unknown that's not as approachable uh, love letter uh, mm -hmm. it's a very popular game right everyone knows love letter it has every single ip under the sun yeah uh, but but john uh the head of uh aeg he will tell you that like you know they had love letter as they couldn't sell it at first they throw it into a, a gift bag they were given to people uh because they just, it, it wasn't churning and then all of a sudden, like people started playing it, that everyone at Gen Con was playing it. And I think that um, moments like that have occurred more and more often over the years. I think more and more publishers are becoming a little bit more adventurous and trying to bring uh, games from the East uh, to the West. So now, and not just, and not just board game industry, but like movies and film mm. and everything. So uh, the idea of Asia is a little bit more uh, approachable, more familiar audiences in the West and gamers in the West as well. So I think that's that's something that's shifting recently. No, I, I agree with you in on that front um, because I remember, well, recently, um, my friend Pauline Fate Kong and, and, and a friend of hers as well uh, created Deep and Sum and they got in Facebook. It's, it's literally a game about going to a, a restaurant and, and eating Dim Sum. And they managed to get over seven thousand backers in in Kickstarter. Wow! It was, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that game. It was incredible. So it it is pretty obvious, as you say, that there isn't anything specifically against uh, Asian games or Asian th uh, thematic games. It's just that there is a massive amount of 
ignorance. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's just that there's a lot that we don't know. And it is, I'm going to say, yeah. very hard to find that kind of information because I've been literally for over a year thinking and wondering how how do I focus on these games? How do I find them? And it, it ain't easy. How do you do it? I mean, I know that you're in Taiwan, so it might be a little bit easier, but how do yeah. you do it? <laughs> um, I think that, well, going back to what you said earlier, I just want to say, I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's um, exposure. Right? Well, yeah, but that's what I mean. I mean, without, without exposure, doesn't come knowledge, and without knowledge, we have ignorance. That's why I'm, that's why I didn't want to say I didn't mean it in a bad way. It's just that we don't know. We focus on the things that we have near us and the things that we are exposed to, and the truth is yeah. that we are not exposed yeah. enough to to Asian culture. It's, just, it's at least in Spain, we definitely aren't, and we should. Uh, but going to uh, how do I stay on top of it? Well, um, I, well. Uh, we are both in marketing, in case the listeners don't know. But um, so, as a marketer, uh, it's one of the things you learn is that uh, different social medias um, have different penetration rates in different countries. Mm. Like one country might use one uh, social media more than another. Uh, Taiwan has one of the highest penetration rates of Facebook. I think it's something like ninety-eight percent. So that's ninety-eight percent of like Taiwanese people use Facebook or on on Facebook. Good grief. So like, mo yeah, it's huge, <laughs> huge here. Like I have seen, like I, I, I befriended some of my, um, my students. Uh, I used to be an English teacher, so I befriended some of my students. Like they, like they might have a picture of them at the beach and then it's like 500 likes, just something ridiculous. Um, like most restaurants here in Taiwan, they don't have web pages because there's no need. They have a Facebook page. And if you look on them in Google, they'll be like, Go to the web page and then you jump to the Facebook page. Wow. Um, so if you're wanting to learn about Taiwanese board games, then um, following the publishers uh, in Facebook is probably the best bet. Like all their events will be, all the local events are all on Facebook. Um, like not that many people use uh, like Meetup or or any other the other platforms. It's mostly Facebook. Whereas Japan, though, uh, Japan loves Twitter. So if you want to learn more about uh, Japanese publishers, you need to follow them on Twitter because they'll, they're quite active there. Some of them don't even have Instagram or Facebook, but they are on Twitter. You know, so it's um, different, uh, different countries do different things. So for me, learning about Japanese games, I just make sure I follow um, the Japanese publishers. I'm pretty, I try to be strict at first with my Cardboard East uh, Twitter. I try to just I try just to follow uh, the publishers. Otherwise, I'll get bombarded by lots of stuff in the West and I'll miss something from the East that I need to see. The, um, uh, all the, all the uh, Taiwanese publishers are pretty active on Facebook. They, they always have lots of playtests. In fact, there's, like, there's a local uh, playtest that meets like every month. And there's a national event where they invite all the designers from all over the country to have a giant playtest once a year. Uh, and that allows me to keep tabs of like all the publishers and, and what they're doing. Um, as for Korea, uh, I think Korea, they do a lot of um, uh, YouTube and uh, Facebook and Twitter. They do a little, little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, Singapore is uh, mostly just like two or three publishers and they're on Instagram and they're pretty, uh, pretty active on Instagram. So it's, it's like just knowing the right channel to follow the right country of publisher. For for those of us who are, well, just don't speak uh, barely any other language apart from English, and in my case, Spanish, how can we get over that barrier? Because I know that for an awful lot of people, they don't even look into Asian games because the language barrier is ginormous, uh, even if it is just to read news or uh, keep abreast of what's what's going on. How could we, what can we do apart from using, you know, generic Google Translator, which is not very good. Uh, <laughs> what can we yeah. do? Well, um, Korea, Korea Games, and well, Korea Board Games, the publisher, and Mandu Games, uh, those are the, probably the two biggest publishers out of Korea. Uh, they do most of their marketing in English because uh, they kind of focus more internationally. 
Singapore is all English, so there's nothing to worry about there. Huh? Um, actually, like I can't read Japanese at all. <laughs> but um, the the translate on Twitter is actually quite good. Okay. So if I see a picture I think it's interesting, then they could translate it. You just have to click on the tweet, so it'll isolate the tweet, then you can see the thread down below. But you also see something that says translate tweet, and then you can just and that could translate it for you. Um, I would say though that like uh, for Japanese games, there's a few. I would say about ten people, like ten people from the West, or they were bo born from the West. They might live in uh, Japan, or they might live in North America. But I think ten people are the ones that I follow, and those kind of give me a good idea of like what's uh, happening, at least so in Japan. Okay. Um, I follow them all on Twitter. So if you follow me on Twitter, you should. Okay, no, I will, I will definitely take a look. I will definitely take take a look at that because it's 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 one thing, and also I need to check if TweetDeck, which is what I use to um, to manage my my Twitter feed, mm. can do the translation as well because I'm not I'm not entirely sure if if there is a way to to do it easily enough. But I will I will definitely look into that. Um, and then as for Taiwan, like um, yeah, they they mostly on Facebook market towards the local audience. Um, if I see something that's uh, interesting or like a new game pops up, I usually post about it on one of my channels, whether it be Instagram or, or Twitter. Okay. And then for my Facebook, I'm a, I gotta tell you about I'm a little lazy. <laughs> it's like I'll just mirror my post from uh, Instagram to Facebook. Well, which is fair enough. I do exactly the same. I mean, I, I don't. I, I. I. Quite frankly, I. I do have enough going on. If I had to take care of absolutely every single social media outlet that it's out there to make my content known, it would be like I need I need another job for another life just yeah. to be able to get this organized. I wouldn't be able to do it. So yeah, I can, Amen, I can understand. Amen. <laughs> I can understand that being, you know, um, you having to focus on, on something. Um there is there's one topic that I would like to to touch with, um to touch on with you. Go for it. Um, we keep talking about, uh, you know, Asian board games, but when I hear you talk, you are making very much a point of differentiating between games from Korea, games from Japan, games from Singapore. Are we risking, when we mention Asian games, are we risking encapsulating everything as a monolithic sort of style of gaming or mm. kind of culture of gaming that doesn't really reflect reality? Um, I think that's fair to say. Like, it's not, Asian board games are not a monolith. Um, I mean, if you look at uh, Japanese games, uh, I would say that, and these are broad strokes I'm speaking here with, but uh, uh, Japanese games tend to not care so much about art. Uh, they don't. They tend to emphasize uh, game mechanics a little bit more. I would say that game mechanisms tend to be a lot more innovative. Things that I have never seen before uh, come out of Japan. Um, however, uh, Japan, I think uh, the board game community, at least of the designers, is quite small. So they don't play test a lot or nearly as much as uh, like North American or European publishers do. But I think that's, that's slowly changing. Uh, Especially with the with the term of the pandemic and like digitalization being what it is and TTS uh, being what it is and VGA being what it is, like uh, there people are playtesting a lot more often because you could play online and get a lot more data that way. Um, I would say that Taiwanese board games tend to be focused more on being uh, small. That are Taiwanese publishers, I think, have. One, I think they have a better sense than all the other countries of the international market and how to release games. And then two, I think they've gotten really good at creating small box games that are very approachable and easy to learn, but offer depth for replay value. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Singapore with origami games, like they, 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 I think, mastered the art of like uh, taking, uh, infusing like local culture into their games and make it approachable for the local market. Like they do a really good job. Uh, with that, uh, Korea uh, lately has their publishers of Mandu and Korea board games have done a really good job of penetrating the Western market better than all the previously mentioned countries. Like, um, like everyone, 
like everyone knows like Four Gardens, mm-hmm. um, you know, like uh, like Jekyll and Hyde got on BGA and got like tons of plays. So I think like Korea has been really good at that. Um, other other upcoming countries like Vietnam and uh, Thailand, uh, even India, are slowly getting out there to the market. But they, I would say like you know, the Vietnam and Thailand still feel like uh, I think they're like the games that I played from them, which is very few, mm-hmm. but they definitely feel more like games I would play while having a beer. Okay. Like having a beer with some friends, very approachable games. Now they do have slightly gamier games out there. Um, and then I haven't played any games from India, but I backed one on Kickstarter and I'm looking forward to trying it out because it definitely looks really interesting. Uh, the only Indian game I own is a card game called Mahayoda. Uh, that came out in Kickstarter a long, long time ago, a very long time ago, and it looks unbelievable. It's absolutely gorgeous, mega, mega gorgeous. But no, I haven't, I haven't really. Um, again, because I, I wouldn't know where to start um, trying to find uh, Indian board game designers, and it's like, how do I, how do I do this? How do I do this? Because even when I have um, made a forum post in Board Game Geek or uh, made a, a call out in, in Twitter, even when my friend Seng Fun Lim said, you know, guys, Paco wants to do Asian board games. Come on, let's 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 send some some stuff, <laughs> some links his way. Tumbleweed God. It, it is really difficult, really, really hard. Well, I think that's um I think that's one of the reasons why I started uh Cardboard East. Um, living in Asia has definitely been pretty good to me. Um, I, I've changed a lot as a person. Uh, being in Asia, my viewpoints, uh, I think who I am fundamentally has changed completely over the last 16 years. And um, and I felt like I wanted to give something back mm-hmm. to Asia. And I and I love board games and I think and I really like the local board game scene. So I know that like, a lot of people have trouble, you know, learning about Asian board games. So I created Carbodies to kind of help people learn more about Asian board games and bring awareness to them. And that, uh, I guess like that's, that's what keeps me going. You know, and I, the, the thing that gets me going with, with Asian board games is, well, two things. Uh, the, the main one, I'm going to be very honest, is that I think the best ideas are coming from Asia. I fell in love with Asian board games, the first time I play Sheppy. Ah, Sheppy's a good game. I just thought, okay, a, a, a solitaire game based on a post-apocalyptic world in which you have to survive, and you're, you're a sheep and you have to get to a thousand so you can survive. Okay, I... I <laughs> <laughs> How can this work? And it does. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. So I, I fell in love with that because it's so... Then I, I, I talked with another, with a Japanese designer in 2017 at Essen, and he had a role-playing game. I love role-playing games as well. And he had a role-playing game in which you played a member of a K-pop band. What? How could he... How awesome. can, yeah, how can this actually work? Then no one would think of this. Nobody would think about that and, and make it work properly. In, in the way. So, so that was amazing. But the one thing that I'm also a bit adamant that I want to, to do this is because I hear, and I am very, very vocal and advocate about inclusion and diversity and, and, and um, you know, exchanges of cultural information. But the thing that I have seen, and I get an awful lot of rap for saying these things in public, but I have seen an awful lot of, yeah, this is all cool to do as long as the diversity and the differences and the inclusion is either European or North American based, especially North American based. You know, people want to see more Asian board game designers, but they want to see more American born board Asian game designers. You know, they're they're not really interested in doing what you're doing and finding out, you know, how how things are going on. I'm a bit, no, no, these people they're just as passionate as we are. They deserve exactly the same level of exposure and the same level of love that somebody living in Toronto 
is getting or in New York is getting or Chicago is getting. Why don't we do this? Some of it, yeah, I want real diversity. I don't want just North American, European diversity. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Like the, I think that's the, I mean, I've been in a board game store since the 90s. So I've seen like board games uh, and the board game, you know, industry and community have changed a lot in the last, you know, 30, 30 or so years. Like I remember when BGG was kind of creepy in a way, you know, like, the, like there's no other way to say that. It's just like, oh, this is the most popular picture and it's some woman in a tank top holding a game. And I'm like, that's, that's just kind of creepy. <laughs> That makes me feel uh, like I question my hobby, but um, that, that's changed a lot. So, and I do applaud the push for diversity. I do wish there was a little bit more international, uh, like you said. Um, but, you know, like some publishers, uh, you know, TMG, you know, may it rest in peace. Uh, TMG brought a lot of games uh, from Japan and Taiwan uh, to the North American market, and they did really well. Um, it could just be that. And man, again, it's just broad strokes, but I think the most recent trend in the industry is like, um, for lack of a better term, I know I'm going to create lots of ruckus here, but uh, I think a lot of people like overproduced games yes. in North America right now. And I, I don't think over, overproduced sounds like an ugly word, but I think it's produced more than what I think is necessary for the game. So a good classic example of that is you know, Capitals of Burgundy just got launched on GameFound, I think, today. Mm -hmm. And it's like 100 euros for this massive game. And, like, you could have, like, these, I don't know, tiny espresso cup-sized miniatures of castles for the Castles of Burgundy. Like, if you love Castles of Burgundy and you have the, you know, the disposable money for it, like, more power to you. But I don't think that's necessary. I agree. So when you look at um, Japanese games where... You know the marketing is the or at least the manufacturing and production for the artists on the low end and they focus more on the gameplay it's very jarring i think and i think when a publisher from the west sees that they're like well i have to completely redo this art and that's going to cost me money because art is very expensive. expensive yes you know and that's why that's why like companies like ffc like create their own ip so they can repurpose the art again and again and again. Um, so I, I think that like that's that becomes a huge barrier for a lot of publishers for to import or distribute games from the West, particularly like Japan. But I do think that's changing. It's definitely changing. How uh, that that was going to be my next question actually. In in the time that you have um, been covering all these games from from all over the place, what do you think has been the largest uh, change that you have seen, something that, you know, 10 years ago you wouldn't have thought could happen? Mm. You know, um, I, I had a conversation earlier today about uh, Alien Frontiers. I don't know if you played that game. Um, but to me... Obsessively. Like, it's my favorite <laughs> game. Obsessively. Well, then you know, Paco, that... Uh, Alien Frontiers uh, is, I think, an unsung hero because it's one of the first games from Kickstarter Definitely. that was actually good. And, and at the time, and it made $30,000, and it was like, wow, yeah. $30,000. <laughs> and today, that's a bit like, wow, $30,000, what? 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 Uh, yeah, the, but that, I think that opened up a lot of people's eyes. And then the last like you know, 15 years or so, Kickstarter has actually grown, mm -hmm. and now we have GameFound. But um, I think the biggest change uh, would be the most recent thing is I think with the pandemic, uh, a lot of small publishers like from Asia just, you know, had trouble surviving. So they uh, did a lot more crowdfunding. So in the last like two years, we have seen a lot of Japanese publishers uh, have their own campaigns on Kickstarter. And that's great because a lot of people like all over the world have you know, better access uh, two games. Like I don't think anyone in Europe would have like a kindly world. No, no, no. Know, I, or I, I have absolutely zero expectations of seeing that game 
on, on the shelves. And when I saw Ultia today, that I opened it to do the unboxing video, I was just, ah, I just want to play it now. It's so beautiful, so simple. So and I'm a graphic designer, so whenever I see good graphic design, so like I just, you know, fall in love a little bit. So uh, that, that's, that's Ultia. Yeah, the, uh, uh, I, I, I hear you, man. Like the, uh, but I think that that's the one biggest change is that now, like, like Taiwan, Taiwan, uh, people in Taiwan are not allowed to use Kickstarter. Like you're not allowed to launch a campaign if you, if your company is uh, based in Taiwan. Now, whether that's like China related or not, or China throwing its weight around, like, I'm not sure. But I mean, there are a lot of ways around that. So a lot of Taiwanese publishers will either go through Hong Kong, uh, Tokyo, or California, or mm -hmm. somewhere in America, and then launch a campaign through that. So, and we've seen that more also recently. So I think those are the probably, the, that's the biggest change. It's a good change. I, li I, I like that change a lot. Um, there's something as well that I wanted to ask you, and it's about what is the environment like um, among the publishers in, in, in Asia? Because one of the things that really surprised me was the first time that I went to the, um, the booth in Essen for Taiwan Board Game Design, and I, I met Smooth Chen there. And um, he said, oh, we have this many people, this many games in, in here. Would you like to interview them? And I thought, this doesn't happen very often. The, a publisher forward me to these are the publishers and designers all over the place mm -hmm. just to you know, give them some visibility. What, what is the environment like among professionals in there? Well, uh, Snooks. As uh, he runs uh, TBD, Taiwan mm -hmm. Board Game Design. Um, now, I wouldn't call them a publisher, but more like a collective. So uh, back in the day, like there were um, lots of designers in Taiwan. Like each designer had his own company, mm -hmm. right? So they would create a game and they try to sell locally, maybe make some money, maybe not. But when they wanted to go to Eshin, they decided that, well, I think it's cheaper if we just all bought one booth. And these are, you know, these are, these are the games from Taiwan. And that's where, like, TBD, from my understanding, uh, kind of came from. So, like, TBD has, like, lots of different publishers in the Shine Collective. It's all sold on one website. So if you're curious about it, and they have, like, a factory in, in France. So it's really easy for them to ship to the EU. And they have one booth um, in, in essence. So like all those publishers are under that one Roof, table. Yeah. Now, now some of the publishers have grown uh, since then and they wanted to, you know, I want to leave the bird's nest. I want to have my own thing, like the more ideas, like they have their own booth. Uh, Empress 4 uh, in past years have had their own booth as well. So they've, they've kind of grown and left uh, TBD, but everyone is still friendly to each other. Like everyone's pretty nice to each other. No one's that mean. Like I don't think there are any blood feuds or anyone hates anyone else. Uh, I mean, yeah, there are definitely disagreements, and at the end of the day, they are competitors. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, though, is that um, I can I can only speak to Taiwan. So that's the one that I'm most familiar with. Is that every month there is one of the publisher hosts a playtest. So local designers from pretty much anywhere on the island are welcome to come to this room. And there's usually about maybe 30 people there and they can play test their games. And they get feedback uh, from their games and people can tell them what they think. And sometimes it's other designers saying, oh, I like this idea, I like this idea. Why don't you try this? Have you tried this? This might work, can we also try that? And it creates this group think of what games uh, should be like and what kind of games that they should design. And then eventually like, they'll, those games will evolve into actual board games that publishers will begin to develop in-house. And some publishers will like go to uh, do play test events with the normal crowd. So when my wife's favorite game for most of tea, um, that publisher took that game because it's about tea uh, to, I don't know, like a hundred different tea houses across the island <laughs> and played with like just regular, yeah, just played with regular people and they would give them, you know, their thoughts on the game. And they tweaked the game here and there uh, for that. So Taiwan does do like quite a lot of playtesting, 
and they're pretty open about it. But like once it comes to one point, they kind of close the doors, develop it internally, and then they try to sell it international. So there's this, um, I guess everyone's nice and cordial still to each other. If you want to talk about game design, they all want to share their opinion and help, help each other out. But when it comes time to business to sell games, like, you know, hey, you do your thing, I'm, I do my thing. Okay. We're not going to butt heads or stab each other in the back. We're just, you know, we're just out here to make money. But that sounds actually quite healthy. Actually, you know, that, I think that sounds quite healthy. The fact that, okay, you want to do it that way, go ahead. You want to do it this other way, I'm, I'm, this is my way, go ahead. But the fact that they're not stepping, you know, on, onto each other, that's, I, I like that. Because I know for a fact that that is not what happens in plenty of other places in all over the world. You know, people do get really mean and, and, and unpleasant. What, apart from, you know, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, um, apart from obviously changing, um, you know, the, the packaging and, and, and the artwork, what else do you think that Asian companies would have to do to make their games either more approachable or more accessible or more, basically, more attractive to to sales in, in the US and Europe? Um, well, I think Asian publishers are kind of... Uh, I actually had had this exact question asked me um, in their interview, in the previous interview, uh, you know, how, how do Asian publishers stay competitive with the Western market? And I think the answer is, it's, you've got to go big, got to go big or go home. And I think it is possible. Um, the problem is, is that it's a big risk, right? So hmm. uh, bigger games take a longer time to develop. They cost a lot more money to develop and it's a lot more of a risk when you develop those games because if it doesn't go well, then you lose you know, quite a bit of money. But I think that's the direction that needs to happen. Um, if you want to be taken a little more seriously, definitely in the EU and, and North American markets. But it is possible. So like one a Japanese publisher, Uchipokoya uh, from Japan, they had Aqua Garden. Aqua Garden had like an amazing Kickstarter a few years ago, uh, I forget exactly how much money was raised, but I remember like uh, someone in the board game group on Facebook was just asking, I don't get it. How is this? Why do? How did this get so much money? It's like there are no minis. There are no. There's no minis, bro. How did that happen? And I think that's. Um, I think what's really cool about Japanese uh, publishers and like Taiwanese publishers uh, coming out to. <laughs> uh, crowdfunding is that it reminds us as gamers one like uh, this is what these crowdfunding sites were I think originally used for so that these small time publishers small time designers can have a chance to get this dream this passion project out you know so to give like these smaller publishers a chance because, like these big publishers like like it's they, they don't need to use a crowdfunding some of the games that they make are very expensive. Like, mm. you know, Simon's games yeah. are very expensive. Like for <clears throat> Awakened Realms, like their games are very, very expensive. expensive. So having yes. a so having a crowdfunding so you know exactly how many you need to make is really necessary um, for those. But like a lot of the games that are in between, you don't really need those uh, kind of you know crowdfunding things. That's more like that's more I think the idea of well, do I want to pitch this to a publisher and make less money for myself, or do I want to just crowdfund this, uh, do the marketing myself, and then I can make more money. And maybe leave my day job. <laughs> okay, that'll be nice. <laughs> but, um, but I think, yeah, I think if Asian publishers want to get out there more, they got to do Kickstarter campaigns and make, you know, bigger games. But it, it is possible. And like Geisha's Road, like, mm -hmm. had tremendous success yes. on its uh, Kickstarter. So it, it's, it is possible, you know, oh, I think Ostia, Osprey Uchipakoya, like they had a big Makala game. That, that got a lot of success as well. So I think bigger games in Asia is uh, a way to go. It, it sounds interesting because um, what you're saying to me sounds very much echoes what um, a friend, uh, James Wallace, said in, in a talk a few years ago. Uh, he was talking about role-playing games, but I reckon that this also fits with, with board games, and is that if you want to make it big in the US, you have to look American. Yeah. yeah. 
that's 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 just the way it is. Uh, you, you have to Americans have to feel that they're buying something that they're used to buying. Otherwise, they they just won't won't look twice because there is so much offer at the moment. There is so many options that why would they? They already know. They already have something they know and like. So yeah, why yeah. risk it? So yeah, that that echoes and that makes to me. That that makes perfect sense. But also, what I would like to ask you is, um, and to start wrapping up the the interview a little bit, um, what advice would you have to give to publishers from from North America and Europe to look at Asian board games? Because that is something else that I think I would love to see happening. You know, I would love to see Aiello going into uh, or, or Fantasy Flight and getting you know more. Japanese, more Taiwanese, more Vietnamese designers into this game we've made it from these people. How could they start finding the talent that's out there? Well, I think, well, the answer to your question, Parker, it's, um, it's already happening. What's your channel as well? <laughs> well, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, that's the main answer is to watch my channel and get everyone in Europe to watch my channel. Yes. That's the the answer. I'm going to stick with that. No, the but the real answer is like it's <laughs> is that it's already happening. Like yellow, um, I think for me, like one of the best games to come out of Asia in 2017 and be reprinted in 2018 is Improvement of the Polis. And Improvement of Polis was uh, got picked up by Yellow, and they called it Cora Rise of an Empire, mm -hmm. and that that was huge. It became a big success. It was very Euroy. Um, and I really enjoy that game, and I still enjoy it. Um, also, Yellow uh, picked up uh, Japanese publisher Sashi and Sashi. Like, mm -hmm. uh, he had a game called, uh, what was it called? Uh, Let's Make a Bus Trap. And then they changed it to Get On Board. Mm -hmm. And that's, and if you ask me, like, if you had to get Let's Make a Bus Trap or Get On Board, I would go for Get On Board. I think the production is really nice. I mean, I will miss uh, Takashi Takarai's art. Uh, I love her art because I'm a big like Princeton Tintin. It, it feels like that reminiscence of Tintin. But I think to get on board, it comes with two maps, not one. Uh, you have the little wooden pieces to mark the bus route, which is a lot clearer. Um, so it reduces friction from the gamer's perspective. And like that's, I think it's already happening. And I think that's because um, a few like, Japanese publishers have become, gotten cult following. Like little publishers like in Asia have gotten cult followings and people uh, who've been in the hobby for a while kind of gravitate towards certain publishers. And these publishers or like certain influencers or content creators have all begun slowly looking into certain publishers and these publishers they get bigger and bigger and bigger and then that starts turning the heads of the bigger publishers like Yellow. I, yeah, and, and, and Yellow is, is a good company. I, I like the games they do, and I like the productions they, they do. Sometimes they go a bit... Wow. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah, I mean... I, I, they, but they, it's not overboard. No, no. I, I think I, I, I have a, I think the only time that they have really gone overboard with the game uh, that I've seen is um, The Mountains of Madness, mm, which you yeah. put it on the table and you think, it's a party game. Do you really need all of this shit? <laughs> yeah, that was, um, that was bad marketing, I think. Because like, I saw Mountains of Madness, I'm thinking, oh, it's a horror game. It's Lovecraft, right? Thank you. Exactly. No. No, 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 it, no. It, it's it's a party silly game. I think, and do you really need all of this? Well, no, just make it smaller so I can take it everywhere. But other than that, I have a ton of their games, and they're just, I mean, they really hit the nail on the head more often than not. Um, one last question. Is there an opinion uh, in, in nature about companies who create Asian-looking games but have absolutely zero input from any Asian designers or illustrators or, or what have you? Because we, we are seeing an awful lot of those games that are based on, oh, the wars from so-and-so and, -so and uh, the shoguns from whatever, whatever. But then you look at the credits and it's like, yeah, I can't see any um, Asian input in here. Is there an opinion in Asia about that kind of games? Well, I think it's I think I think it's pretty universal that they got, everyone raises an eye, like man, <laughs> uh, 
you know, if aliens captured, kidnapped a hundred people from Earth, eighty of them are going to be Asian. <laughs> um, so the fact that you can find one to consult, this seems odd. Um, I don't think most people have a problem with it. Uh, at least from my, from my perspective, I think it only becomes a problem when it's when they don't do their homework. Hmm. and they might appropriate something that seems awkward or doesn't make sense, then it becomes quite a problem and people kind of make fun of it and say, like, that's just kind of weird. So like, like, why did they do that? That makes no sense. It should have been this. That would, it would have made more sense. Um, I can't think of one off the top of my head, unfortunately. Um, I, think, I think there was one like Taj Mahal, which is, um, I think like they had certain uh, gods from India that it just kind of just felt a little odd to mm -hmm. some people and felt like, you know, if you just had a consultant, someone who knew um, about this and say like, mm, you should do this instead, you should do this instead, make it look like this, rephrase it to look like that. So it's not as, you know, about two British museum. But because like at the same time, I mean, like a lot of Asian designers make a lot of games about Europe. You know, fair enough. Uh, you know, grass is always greener. You know, like uh, the Taiwanese, like they have a, like uh, they have Hanamagoji, which is about geishas. Like, uh, uh, and were also made a game called Machina Barana, which is about, you know, Barano, Italy. Yeah. So, and, and it's actually a pretty good game, complicated as hell, but it's actually a pretty decent game. So, um, I'm, yeah, I, I can see that. Okay. Um, so, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. If you ever want to have me on again. Oh yeah, I, 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 you, can, you can. You can count on that. In fact, I, I will. I will probably talk to you about that when when we stop recording now in a minute. But uh, I, I hope. I really hope that people will start taking more notice, uh, not just of Asian board games, but also of, of your channel. I think I could, you know, and I'm not talking from a huge YouTube channel, but the fact that you only have 426 subscribers, as I looked at a little while ago, that's a bloody travesty. People should be following you. Why aren't they? What was wrong with them? I. I... Don't tell my boss, but I think I'm bad at marketing. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's, um, I think that's the, the fact is that um, I, I'm old. I was born last century. So mm -hmm. I'm a little bit of a grognard sometimes. And I think that today, if you're a content creator and you want to get your vanity numbers up fast, uh, then you have to do TikTok and you have to do Twitch and you have to do more online streaming. And you have to do more like Instagram Live. Like that's that's the thing that needs to happen. Yeah, I I think that um, like people are a little bit older, like me are just you know I, I'm doing this for fun. First and foremost, I'm doing this for fun. If I can make money at it, that's great. But just if I can make a living at it, wow! I don't I don't I don't know if that could be be happen. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, who knows? But it's that's that's something I'm not experimenting yet. I want to get comfortable with this. Like my my goal for sort of the YouTube channel was just to can I can I make at least like 40 videos in a year? Can that something I can do? Just just that. Mm -hmm. And we both accomplished that uh, this year. So now we're thinking about well, what's going to be our challenge for next year? Um, and just getting the quality of the videos a little bit better. Well, your quality is pretty good already. Oh, you, you make you make thanks, some man. you make some really 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 decent videos and um, believe me as somebody who even though I don't look it but I am heading towards my fiftieth I understand totally what you say about the um, the the age thing and keeping up with all the trends in social media is just impossible and I am not gonna be on TikTok doing one minute videos I can't <laughs> I hear you, man I. I... I don't, it's not something I'm looking forward to either. No, I'm sorry. I think that's where I drew my line. You know, I'm a, I'm a bit, I, it's, it's hard enough fighting with the YouTube's algorithm all the time because if people think that this is different, no, we are fighting an algorithm, all of us. And fighting to get the, to, to get the algorithm's love is a lot of work. It's just, no, thank you. <laughs> So, but, but anyway, in any event, people should stop subscribing to your channel because it's, it's brilliant uh, and you're very good Thanks, at it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
So uh, anyway, um, I hope that I will talk to you very soon. Yeah, I had a great time, Paco. I I had a great time in this conversation. I definitely look forward to our next uh, and future talk. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you will take a look at Jay's blog. That would be very, very much appreciated. Please send me your comments. Seriously, I would love to hear from you. Email me at podcast.gmsmagazine.com. Find me on Twitter, find me on Facebook, find me anywhere, but just find me. I'm here for you. This podcast has been made by Paco Garcia. That would be me with help from Chris Diaz and Martin Reed. The intro and outro music has been composed by Kev at set. Until the next time, once again, thank you very much for being there, and I will talk to you very, very soon. Take care.